Our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, selected verses from Proverbs 24, Romans 12, Galatians 6, and Matthew 5. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is God's word. Amen. Well, thank you, Susan, and good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff Skipper, uh, the pastor over at Redeemer Southwest Church, and I can't believe it's been probably over a year since I've preached here on a Sunday morning, and so I probably don't know a lot of you. Um, but I'm the pastor at Redeemer Southwest. We meet at the Howard Johnson over by Wawa. You can't miss it, the bright orange roof. Uh, and we, we worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings as well. And uh, we launched worship services just over a year ago in January 2016. And so just to encourage you for a moment before we begin, we've had a great year. Uh, there were hard weeks as we expected, right? Uh, but a lot of those weeks, you guys came over and encouraged us and visited us because the first summer is the hardest for a new church plant. Uh, so thank you for your faithfulness. Um, we set out to reach unchurched and dechurched people. Uh, if we had not done that, um, we wouldn't have met our goal, to be honest. And God has been faithful in bringing exactly who we set out uh, to reach, from friends and neighbors to family to people we've met uh, in Little League sports um, uh, or at schools. And those people, and, and including myself, uh, we're hearing the gospel each week, experiencing Christian community. Uh, people have come to know Jesus this year and been baptized, uh, which has been really exciting. Actually, some who are very, very dear to my heart. Um, and be encouraged, because... Almost all of that is a product of your commitment to seeing God's kingdom come in our city and not your own. Uh, Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And uh, there's people in our group who died to comfort to go, and, there, and, and you died in many ways to support us. And so there is visible fruit of God's kingdom sprouting up around our city that wasn't there before because of your commitment. And so thank you. So rejoice with us. And also, let this just be a word to say, let's keep doing what we're doing. Because as we live that way and give and give away and risk, uh, God is faithful um, to do his part uh, because he's working. Uh, so, and also, let me just say, please, please continue to pray for us because uh, one of the biggest things you can pray for is as we grow, the, the hojo is getting really snug. Uh, so we covet your prayers or uh, your real estate in southwest Winter Haven. We covet that as well. Uh, that was a joke. If you have a building, we want it, right? Um, and, and pray for me and, and our leaders and my family as we continue to press on in the work that God has called us to. We're having a lot of fun, uh, and so thank you. God is being so faithful. Um, so speaking of pressing on, two weeks ago we started a new series known as The Seven Deadly Sins. And The Seven Deadly Sins uh, is a classic list of vices that have historically been, been considered by Christians and moral philosophers. Kind of, the, They're not exhaustive, right? There's just seven of them. Uh, but they're the roots of all the bad things that come out of us and cause destruction and pain to us and our relationships and our lives. And the purpose of identifying these seven deadly sins historically was to give us, people, broken people, a, a moral compass 
right? So that we might get on a path to wholeness in destroying the vices, ripping the vices up by the roots, and, and cultivating virtues in our lives to be made whole again as God designed us. Now, the problem today is uh, our, our world has really thrown out all the moral maps, all the moral absolutes. Our world generally scoffs at the idea of there being sins, uh, or much less any of them being deadly. Uh, for example, MTV, uh, not that I watch it, I didn't see this series, but they did this. They did a series on the seven deadly sins. And uh, in that series, they said, a little lust, pride, sloth, and gluttony, in moderation are fun, and that's what keeps your heart beating. Right? Uh, that's really the world's approach to, to sin and deadly sins. But the Bible says either we're killing sin or sin is killing us. It takes it gravely seriously. And so we're called to this process, this journey of wholeness. The fancy word is sanctification, becoming holy. So that means the good news of the gospel is not only that God came in Christ to save us and love us just as we are, which is the word justification, that we don't have a part in. That's all God's work. But also, uh, the good news is that God intends to make us whole and beautiful again because he loves us too much to leave us as we are. You see, thank God he doesn't say, good luck from here on out. But he wants to make us whole and beautiful, right? And we have a part in that work um, called sanctification. And so during this short season of Lent, we're kind of renewing our commitment to this great restoration project that God is doing us. We're getting on that path to wholeness. Like you say, Jeff, what is this map? We know the vices. What are the virtues? Classically, there were four. But what we're looking at, the life that we are seeking to grow into is found in the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he describes what a spirit-filled whole human life looks like. This means that the moral project for Christians is continually to die to sin and our old ways of life and grow into and rise into our new life in Christ, which is really just what discipleship is. It's becoming more like Jesus. But we can't just get there by trying harder. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, all right, let's just figure it out, right? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. And so we, we have to go to him and his gospel, and his spirit, and we need his grace. That means as we go through this series, what we're asking ourselves isn't about technique. We're not asking ourselves, okay, what should I necessarily do differently? We don't start there. We say, if I've tasted the grace of God, what sort of life should naturally flow out of me? And the technique will take care of itself. Okay, so that's kind of where we're headed. So today, we move on from pride and envy to a sin that doesn't necessarily look as bad from the outside, because Instead of it being the presence of a bad thing, uh, which we call a sin of commission, really it's, it's, it's the absence of a good thing, the, the right thing. We call that a sin of omission, and that is the sin of sloth. And so you can find an outline in your worship folder. If you'll look there with me, you'll see three points. <clears throat> so look, let's look at it this way. First, the sin of sloth, what is it and why is it so deadly? Uh, secondly, hungering, thirsting for righteousness. What beatitude is the counterpoint to sloth? And why do we find it so hard to live that way? And then finally, the power to seek. How does the gospel create this sort of life in us? Okay, so let's look at the sin of sloth. What is it? Now, the best way to define sloth to begin is for us to talk about what it's not. Because I think uh, when, we, when we hear that word sloth, we're tempted to, like, picture the animal just sitting on the tree or whatever he does. Um, or we're tempted to picture, like, a couch potato with a bag of chips watching reruns of The Office every night, which sounds amazing. Um, that's me a lot of nights. Guilty. And you actually may already be tuning out the sermon because you may think, you know, hey, I'm the busiest person I know. I've got a job. I've got my family. We do little league sports, uh, you know, and so on. I may be a lot of things on this seven deadly sins list. I'll confess to some of them, but 
that, that isn't one of them. And that's exactly why sloth is so deadly. Because it hides itself by looking very, very busy on the outside. You can be a workaholic and be being devoured by sloth. So what is it? Um, the latest show to, to sweep through the skipper house and, and take over is a show called Monster Bug Wars. Where two bugs fight to the death. On video. Riveting. Um, don't Google it now, you know. When you have three little boys, it's that, or Power Rangers, or garbage trucks, most of the time. So, you know, as I've watched some of Monster Bug Wars, what I've noticed is that most bugs don't just run up and, and like, bite the head off of their opponent. They, they don't just take them out really quickly. Uh, no, what most of them do is they, they, they sting or bite their victim, and they paralyze them, and they numb them to where they're dead on their feet, and they never even know it, and they just slowly fade away. Right? That sounds great. That's what's going on in my house. Anyways... That's, that's, that's kind of the approach, and you know what? That's how sloth operates. It's subtle. It's sneaky. It's quiet. It numbs our souls to God. Classically, sloth is a sin of the spirit. It's not a sin of the flesh. Flesh, you think lust and gluttony, right? No, this is a sin of the spirit. It's spiritual apathy. It's a shrug of the shoulders in the face of God. It's joylessness in the face of the supreme joy. It's a lack of desire. It's a lack of concern with eternity, God's kingdom, our souls, or the needs of others. It's not even on our radar at its worst, and it doesn't even bother us when, we, when it's finally overtaken us. It's an unwillingness to commit to the, and, and persevere in the hard work of spiritual growth and, and um, bear up under the demands of love. It's, it's, it's giving up. Dorothy Sayers said it this way. She said, sloth is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there's nothing it would die for. Sloth is just checking out. But what it does, it checks out of the most important things while it checks into less important things. And loses its soul in the process. So as it checks into these less important things, again, that means sloth can look very busy. I think this is what's going on with the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. Do you remember that? He's building bigger and bigger barns for his money. He's consumed with business. You can imagine, this guy's networking, he's planning, he's building, he's an important guy, he's very needed and successful, and yet he's missing the only thing that ultimately matters. Because God shows up at the end of that parable and he says, you fool." you got all this going on, and yet tonight your soul is required of you. What are you going to do? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Sloth makes us care too much about things that don't ultimately matter and care too little about things that eternally matter. Uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, all the way back in the 1600s, he said it this way. He said, the same man who spends so many days and nights in fury and despair at losing some office or at some imaginary affront to his honor is the very one who knows that he's going to lose everything through death, but he feels neither anxiety nor emotion. It's a monstrous thing to see one in the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and strangely so insensitive to the greatest. And this is really the picture we see in Proverbs 24 of the sluggard. It's a soul that's unattended to. It's covered in thorns. It's all grown up with shrubs. But surely, inside, he's busy with many other things, right? Satan has all sorts of big, obvious sins to take us down with that you can probably name. But often, he just creeps the quiet hands of sloth around our neck. And he, and he suffocates us spiritually 
by keeping us busy with other things, often good things. C.S. Lewis picked up on this in his book, The Screwtape Letters, and of course I would never come preach here without quoting C.S. Lewis. I wouldn't dare, right? That would be an affront to Drew or something. So here it is. There's no Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, but I got C.S. Lewis for you this morning. And so in his book, The Screwtape Letters, right, Uncle Screwtape is the senior devil, and he's training his disciple uh, Wormwood, this, uh, you know, younger disciple devil, and how to really take down Christians or believers, and this is the, the advice that he gives him. He says, remember, it doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. He said, murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So our enemy's goal is to to get us to do whatever it takes to get us to check out and evade a life of pursuit and obedience and love of God and others. It can be your smartphone. It can be sports. It can be family. It could be business, politics, wealth, family. It could be religious busyness. It doesn't matter as long as it gets your eyes off of him and on to lesser things. And sloth creeps into the Christian life too, right? We'll talk about that a little later, but where our love for God and love for others and our zeal grows cold. Where might you be in danger of this? Where is your soul unattended to? Is it, is it getting all grown up with thorns? Is it slowly fading away? Or are you taking care of it? Are you busy with lesser things while you don't realize you're ne- neglecting the very thing that matters most? Or have you given up completely? Are you fading? You know, ultimately, sloth is so dangerous. It's so grave because it's breaking the the greatest commandment of all. It's resisting what we were made for, to love God with all we have and to love others in the same way. So we see what sloth is. If that's a picture of how sloth, what it it is, and how it deceives us and ultimately destroys us, what's the opposite? Okay, what, what should our lives look like? And then, why do we have so much trouble living this way? So look at this second point. We see the counterpoint uh, to sloth in Jesus' beatitude uh, from Matthew. Matthew 5, verse 6. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So look at that verse for a minute and notice a difference already. Rather than being numb, apathetic, distracted, or indifferent, right, this person is alive and, and diligent and yearning for more. Look back at our call to worship from Psalm 63. The believer says, God, earnestly I seek you. Right? I have a heart that's awake and, and hungry. So that means the opposite of a slothful spirit is a, a seeking spirit. If sloth is checking out and, and giving up on what matters most, a, a hungry spirit is one that's engaged. It's keeping everything in their proper order. Right? God first and going from there. It's a person who sees through the vanity of what the world has to offer. It's a person who sees the temporary nature of things. A person who's wholly dissatisfied with the way things currently are, including themselves, This hungry person is longing for those wrongs to be made right and looks to God as the only true hope of that actually coming true. A person who's looking to God as the only lasting joy there is, it's a person who's thought about the hard questions in life. They're not distracted. They they, they know where they came from. They know why they're here. They know where they're going. And therefore, because of that, they're aiming all of their lives at his kingdom and seeking to bring the ways of his kingdom, heaven, down to earth in every way they can, on earth as it is in heaven. This is a person who's hunger, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, that was very quick, but if that's what wholeness looks like, the question is, why do we have so much trouble living this way? Why do we give up in our pursuit of God, in, in, of becoming like 
Christ and, and slothfully settle for less. And I think there's three reasons we, we fade. One, because it's hard. Secondly, because we don't believe. And thirdly, because we don't trust. So let's look at each of those. First, we check out spiritually because at its core, following Jesus is a life of love and love is hard and so we begin to avoid that type of life. Do you follow me? Right? Sloth is ultimately a resistance to the demands of love because listen, love takes effort and love takes sacrifice and it's easier just to give up. And so some examples of how sloth creeps into our lives. I, I, I don't lead my family spiritually or disciple my kids because it's too demanding. It takes time, it takes consistency, it takes patience, it takes sac- sacrifice. So Sloth says, I just, I just give up on that. I bail when relationships get tough and require the hard work of apologizing, forgiving, having honest conversations. Because working to maintain relationships and, and deepen relationships, that's too painful and it's too burdensome. And so I can just leave and, or ignore it because that's just easier. Hard work of love, right? I don't pursue my spouse or pray for them or sit with them and ask them, you know, how I can love them better or serve them differently because, listen, that takes effort and it takes selflessness to ask and listen and change. I spend more time at work than I do at home because it's easier or vice versa. I don't seek to build new relationships. I don't seek to share the gospel because that's uncomfortable and it's inconvenient, right? I don't invite people over to show hospitality because that's disruptive and it's messy and it takes too much effort. Sloth. I don't think topics through critically. I don't measure them biblically. I don't wrestle with gray areas because seeing everything in black and white is just easier. I bail from Christian community because vulnerability is hard, accountability is hard, growth is hard, submitting to spiritual authority is hard, and bearing the burdens of others is hard. So if I just live on an island, that's easier, and I don't have to deal with all that. One more. I'm stepping all over my toes too, all right? You're like, goodness, Jeff, stop. I don't step back and examine my life and habits or consider where I might be overindulging in good things and consider how they might be numbing my soul to God because, listen, it's just easier to keep, continue living the way that, you know, keep things are the way they are now because I'm comfortable and I don't really want to be challenged and convicted. Rebecca DeYoung in her book, uh, Glittering Vices, she said it perfectly this way. She said, sloth has more to do with being lazy about love than lazy about our work. Sloth has more to do with being lazy about love Because love is hard. That's where sloth comes in. Where are you tempted to mentally, emotionally, relationally check out? Mine is during dinner, bath, and bedtime at my house. I want to grab my cell phone, turn on sports center, whatever I have to do to get out. It's a hard work of love. Are you just avoiding the demands of love in those situations? But here's the thing. Therefore, you're resisting God's work of transformation in your life. By avoiding love, the hard work of love, because that's where he does that work at. So sloth loves ease and comfort more than it loves God and people. Are you with me? That's what sloth does. So it refuses to commit long-term to the process of sanctification. It avoids the hard work of love, uh, devotion, obedience, and, and it gives up, and it takes the easy way out. But listen, that's the deception. In taking the easy way out, it never grows. It loses its soul. It loses God. It loses joy and slowly becomes cynical, numb, lonely, and empty. Sloth is deadly. So we give up. We opt for a life of sloth rather than hungering and thirsting for God because love is hard. And the Christian life is one of sacrificial love. But secondly, another reason we don't live this life and and we give up easily and we fade in in following Jesus uh, is because we just don't believe it's worth it. 
We don't believe that a life of glorifying God and seeking his kingdom and, and loving others this way is the good life. We don't believe that, that, that laying down our life is, is the way to gain our life. We think it's founding and building our own kingdom, so therefore we don't seek his. Sloth creeps in in that, in unbelief. And then finally, this one probably hits me the most, we give up when we start living as if the results are up to us. This is when I become slothful, Right? When we're not trusting God, I start carrying the weight of how my kids are going to turn out. I carry the weight of ministry and its results. When I try to control the details of my future, right, my kids, all these other things. When I start living as if it all rides on me, rather than looking to God and trusting him, here's what happens in my life. I get overwhelmed, and I get spiritually depressed, and I begin to give up because I feel that weight. We give up. We fall into sloth. This is why this type of life is so hard, because love is hard, and we have trouble believing, and uh, we have trouble trusting God. So what do we do? Right? Here's this crossroads, this dilemma. The Bible says, don't give up. Believe. Engage. Keep investing. Keep loving. Keep choosing the path of sacrifice. But as we've seen, that's, that's hard, and it's easy to give up and settle for less. So where can we find the power to live this way and persevere in the Christian life and endure first? We have to just confess our spiritual apathy, right? God, I'm bored with you when I should be in all. I'm distracted with temporary things rather than looking to you as my only joy. So, Father, help my unbelief because I don't want to waste my life. Do you feel that on any level? I don't want to waste my life. Confession. And then secondly, we pray, God, shake me from my apathy and give me a heart like yours. The psalmist in Psalm 119, he's, he's fading in his pursuit of God. He says, I'm, my soul clings to the dust, and I'm weary, and I'm tired. And this is what he prays in verse 32. He says, Father, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You ever seen the Grinch where the heart grows? We need an experience like that, don't we? I need that over and over again, by the way. Confession, and then pray, God, give me a heart like yours. Give me a heart that, that's full of zeal for your kingdom and not my own. That would hunger and thirst for you, Father. So how can this happen? The power to seek. Well, first you've got to be amazed. All right? And amazement is always a, a reaction, not an action. So when you stand in the delivery room and your child is born, it's a reaction. Right? When you stand at the Grand Canyon or a, a volcano in Nicaragua, you, you just flow in effortless, effortless praise. Or if you've ever been to see a rocket launch, it just moves you deeply. It's always a reaction. You're deeply moved by what you behold and you experience. And this is what this means. A godly life is a reaction, not an action. You can't work it up. True devotion and love is, it can't be forced. Right before Paul says, don't be slothful in Romans 12, he says, let love be genuine. So what does that mean? Genuine love isn't manufactured. Genuine love and devotion and obedience isn't conjured up. So we need to behold something to compel us to live this way, to choose the hard path of love and obedience, of seeking and persevering, what can we behold that would move us to live this way? Do you know that when God looked at us in our sin and mis misery, that we brought upon ourselves, when we were his enemies, rightly deserving judgment, he didn't apathetically shrug his shoulders, thank God. He intervened. He took on flesh as a man. He entered our broken world and experienced it all in our place. He sought us when we were in that condition. Do you remember Jesus hungering in the wilderness when he was tempted uh, to take the easy way out by Satan? And yet he chose the hard way of love, even when he knew it would cost him his life. 
Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sweating drops of blood because the wrath of God and the heat of hell is hanging over him? And rather than taking the easy way out when he hits this crossroads, he chose the hard way of love for our sake. Do you remember when Jesus hung on the cross and people walked by and mocked him and said, if you're the Son of God, why don't you just take yourself down and take the easy way out? And he could have, but he stayed for our sake. With the weight of our sins on his shoulders, he died the death we deserve to die so that we could be forgiven made righteous and reconciled to God. If you look at Jesus' life and God the Father's movement towards us in love, there was no sloth on his part, thank God. Because if there was, we'd still be separated from him and lost and in our sins and hopeless. But he was moved. The gospel of grace is the power to overcome sloth. When you see your condition and how he sought you, you'll start to seek him. When you see how he literally hungered for you, as I just mentioned, you'll hunger for him. When you see how he hung on the cross and said, I thirst for our sake, then you will begin to thirst for a love that would literally thirst for you. When you see how he met the demands of costly love, then you'll believe and will turn to God and will receive the same spirit. The scripture says we receive the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will come into us and empower us to live that same way towards other people. The power is to stand before the cross. You can't stand at the cross and not be moved. If you truly see who you are in your sins and what you rightly deserve, and then what you freely received in Christ by grace, everything in that gap, you received everything by grace, it takes a stony heart to stand there and shrug its shoulders. You've got to be moved. There's no lukewarm before the cross. Have you stood before it if you're struggling with spiritual zeal or seeking God or if your soul's not even on your radar have you considered those things the gospel is what makes our numb hearts come alive and this was the apostle Paul's secret if you've read the bible much uh, Paul can be a little overwhelming in his energy and zeal (laughs) right you read and you're like goodness this guy I don't know if I can ever live up to that you know in Philippians 3 we read it in our assurance of pardon here's what he said he said I press on this is the language Paul always uses right I press on in my Christian life to grab hold of what is already mine in Christ Jesus. I press on. Why? Where did he find the fuel to live that type of life? He said it this way. I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. That was his power. God's grace produces love, not laziness. If we stand before that cross, passion, not passivity, sacrifice, not selfishness, Effort, not earning. Huge difference. One old hymn says it this way. This is a love so amazing, so divine. It demands my life, my soul, my all. And here's the great promise that comes along with the gospel as we seek to live this way. In Galatians 6, 9, we read it. If you look at the scriptures once again, Paul wrote to Christians, these Galatians were tempted to give up in in, in bearing one another's burdens and living this way towards one another. And this is what Paul said. He said, let's not grow weary of doing good because in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Coldplay, the band, sings a song and they repeat this line. Nobody said it was easy. And it's true of the Christian life because it's full of crosses and and obedient of obedience and love. But the scripture says it's all worth it. The psalmist reminded himself when he hit this low point, when it was hard, he's living the Christian life, he's trying to stay faithful, but he can't really see any fruit from his labor. Have you ever been there? I find myself there, I feel like often, because I go by what I see and not by faith. Uh, But the psalmist is living that way, and he finds himself there, and he says this to his own soul. He says, those who sow in tears 
shall reap with shouts of joy. What a comfort as we, as we can seek to continue to labor in love towards others, towards staying in the hard place, towards seeking God. The scripture says it's all worth it. We will reap. Your Bible reading, your prayer is worth it. Your faithful parenting and discipling of your children when it's crazy trying to do family worship and it only lasts 30 minutes and you end up angry afterwards, it's worth it. <laughs> right? you're, 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 you're loving and sacrificing for your spouse and, and pursuing him or her the way Jesus pursued and loved you and laid down his life for you is worth it. Your giving's not in vain. Your commitment to staying in Christian community when it's hard so for the sake of mutual growth is worth it. It's not in vain. You're forgiving, you're serving, you're suffering, you're seeking, you're investing, you're repenting. It all counts in the Lord and you will reap. That's the promise of the gospel. Jesus said to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it may not feel like it right now, but you shall be satisfied. He put his life on it. His resurrection guarantees it. There's no way that can't come true in light of the gospel. What a great security we have in his promises to hear Paul say, don't give up because the harvest is coming. You can't see it. You might get glimpses of it. You may not feel it heavily, but stay in there and hang in there and don't give up because it's coming and it's going to be amazing. So as we go, reflecting on this, we just have four quick things, questions as we apply it. First, how does Jesus beat our lesser things? Where are good things keeping you from the best thing? Whether that be business, recreation, drink, food, media, money, pleasure. At what point is it numbing your soul to God? At what point is it numbing your soul to God? That's a question we should continually be turning around and asking ourselves. And Jesus said, cut it off, replace it with me because I'm the only one who's worth it and can really pay off on what I promise. Secondly, where are you avoiding the demands of love in your life? And can you see that, that what that is is the sin of sloth getting the best of you? Where are you checking out? Because underneath, you don't believe God's promise that those who follow him and take up their cross um, will receive life. Thirdly, Christians, we are just as susceptible to sloth as the world is. Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2.4, he said, I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Think about that. The, the gravity of that. You abandon the love you have at first. Maybe you started off well, but you're drifting. You've grown slack in your pursuit of him. You're fading in your spiritual disciplines. You've, you've kind of drifted from Christian community, and, and, and it really, if you step back and look up, you've, you've given up. The Bible has all these warnings and exhortations, and it says, watch out. Stay awake. Sober up. Keep a close watch on yourself. Peter says, make every effort because your enemy, he's not given up. He's making advances on you and seemingly innocent things. And here's the deal. If those things are taking your eyes off God and, and um, emptying your, your passion for him and it's leading you to invest your lives in fleeting things, then he's got you right where he wants you. So what a call to Christians, right, for us to examine ourselves and, and repent and renew our pursuit of God. To, Paul says don't work for your salvation, but he does say work out your salvation. Work out your salvation and finish the race well. But the only way to do that is by looking to Jesus, who finished the race well for us. And then finally, lastly, Peter Kreeft, he's an author, uh, he said this. He said, the big distinction, the eternal divide is not between those who have found God and those who have not, but it's between those who seek him and those who do not. If you're not a Christian, here's the great promise. All who truly seek, find. 
All who ask will be answered. To everyone who knocks, God will open the door. If you're hungry, he will feed you. If you are thirsty, he will satisfy you. If you come to Jesus with empty hands, he will fill him with himself. So as we go to him in a spirit of self-examination and repentance and faith and seeking, let's ask God to continue the work he started in us. He says he will. To ask him to give us the grace to endure until he brings all things to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's our great hope and our great promise, that as we pursue him, ultimately he's giving us the energy and the grace and the zeal and the faith to do that. He's carrying us home. So will you pray with me? Father, um, thank you that you sought us and bought us with your redeeming blood, that you did hunger and thirst for us in the person of Jesus. God, give us the grace to see our weariness, our sloth, Father, Um, It's hard to detect, so Father, help us to see it. Um, We confess that we grow weary, and and so we confess, God, help our unbelief. I pray that Jesus would be beautiful to us. Uh, Give us eyes to see through vain things and see you as true and beautiful and worthy of our lives, our soul, our all, and draw near to us uh, by your Spirit right now. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, it was great to be with you guys this morning. Um, The author of Hebrews exhorts Christians and says, hey, don't give up. Strengthen your weak knees. Uh, Throw off that sin that keeps tangling you up and run the race that's set before us. How? By looking to Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of God and so shall we be as we follow him in faith. And this is the promise that he gives us the heart both the will and the power to work for his good pleasure. It all comes from him. And this is that promise that he's with us. So receive this benediction if your faith is in Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.